Uh, Job, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we will work our way through the book of Job. Father, we thank you for today again, for the, the joy it has been to be together this morning with your people and to fellowship and to sing and to hear your word taught, and uh, we're thankful for that. Now we're thankful that we can again open up your word and seek to understand it better. Ask that you would give us understanding of the book of Job. Thank you for uh, the truths that it contains, especially as it relates to suffering. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is, as I was studying through the book of Job, um, will anybody read through it this week or anything like that? Or has anybody read through it recently? Okay, recently, yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a heavy book, right? Like it's a challenge. It's thinking about, I mean, so many people in our church that are suffering right now, like with cancer and uh, just sickness of all kind and loss and things like that. Um, oftentimes we can deal, we can think about suffering very tritely. And, I, and even for myself, I've not experienced like great suffering or loss in my life. So I don't ever want to come across as trite because there is an element that in suffering, people who have walked through a certain element of suffering, you can relate more and offer a, another level of hope to a degree. And when you've not gone through that, you don't know what that person's fe- feeling and experiencing to a degree. So it can be harder to enter into that. But yet there are universal truths from scripture that anybody can, we can apply the word of God to and, and things like that. So even as I, I was thinking about Job, I don't want to in any way um, diminish very real suffering because uh, the word of God uh, does not do that. And, and Job is pretty clear. So let's kind of jump into uh, the, the, the setting of the book of Job and some things like that. Um, remember, we're in this last portion of Jesus's Bible, the writings. It's been a number of weeks since we've been together, so I've even forgotten where we're at, right? <laughs> um, but remember, we had the law, the prophets, and now the writings. And we said that the writings are essentially the, the, um, the stories of the faithful remnant, okay? Because the, the prophets really detailed just the demise of the nation, the the sad sickness of the nation. And here we have all these accounts of faithful people. So Ruth, faithful woman, uh, the Psalms, the song of the, of the, of the remnant, the faithful uh, worshipers of Yahweh. And now we come to Job and Job introduces us first now into the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. It's the first of the four books. So you have Job, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes, which would all be considered the wisdom literature. And so Job is the first one. Um, the Psalms, uh, and this is all, Job is also poetic. Uh, and the Psalms were also poetic, but a different kind of poetry. Job is poetic in a, in a dialogue because it's a conversation, but they're using a lot of poetic language and imagery and descriptors, things like that, that we see in other places. Okay. And it's taken from a specific period in this man, Job's life. Like we talked about with the Psalms, there is a universal appeal to the, the poetic, to the wisdom literature, because of that, that universal element of human suffering and what people feel. The Psalms bring that out a lot. Um, the, the writers, like Job, faces real world problems, the feelings and emotions that are expressed there. We feel those things as well. And so there's an appeal to that. Um, wisdom literature in the genre itself is not unique to Israel. That entire uh, Near Eastern context at that time had uh, wisdom literature. Uh, Egypt and Babylon had it as well. 
Paul House said this, wisdom literature has as its aim the desire to teach readers how to live well, how to live successfully. And this is where when we get to Proverbs, uh, a lot of times we have people will have problems with the book of Proverbs because it seems to present uh, almost like a formulaic solution to life, right? If you do this, that, this outcome will happen. Well, that's not how life works. And that's not how the book of Proverbs works either. It's not a formula. Like if you just follow these steps, you know, if you discipline your child, uh, they'll always walk with the Lord. Well, that's not true, right? Life, life tells us that. But it is a general principle for life, okay? So wisdom literature has this desire uh, to teach its readers how to live well. And I think I put in your notes as well. If you read through Dempster, you came across this where he talks about wisdom literature develops the theme of human mastery of the world. And this is, I thought, thought really interesting because he talks about the usage of the word wisdom is first brought to us in terms of people who are skilled. So it, when, when the Lord told Moses to build the tabernacle, he gave, uh, he said, use these men, they are skilled or wise in these crafts, Right metalworking, woodworking, sewing, things like that. And what is the idea? Well, they're masters of their craft, okay? So in wisdom, wisdom literature has to do with this idea of mastery, um, but m- not mastery in the sense of, 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 you know, building things, but in how the world works and how the world operates under God's rule, okay? Uh, much of the wisdom literature, uh, pro- well, Proverbs, Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes are all written by Solomon, right? David's son, of course, the wisest man who ever lived. And the wisdom he gives in these writers, and again, Dempster points this out. He says, it is not for any particular skill or limited technical domain, but for life itself. Consequently, Solomon in part embodies what it means to fulfill the call to be human in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, namely to rule the creation and to exercise dominion over it. So, Wisdom literature has as its aim how to live in the world that God has created, really is what it is, to master it in this way, okay? Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the, the context or the, the setting of the book of Job, the who, where, when, and why. Who was Job? Well, in the opening chapter, we get an idea of who he was. He was a wealthy man. It says he lived in Uz, a blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was uh, these are verses 1 through 3. Possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Uh, 7,000 sheep's a lot of sheep. If you've <laughs> ever been around a herd of any kind of animals, that's, that's quite a number of animals that he has. So he's quite a wealthy man and an upright man, as we will see. He lived in the land of Uz. So he's not in Israel. If your map you see there, it was possibly what would be that, like what, northern Iraq? or somewhere in what would be modern-day Saudi Arabia. They're not exactly sure where Uz was, but those are the two kind of proposed areas. Um, that southern area would be around Edom, right? The descendants of Esau in that area. Uh, the timing of the book, uh, Job is really early, right? Uh, possibly after around the time of the Tower of Babel is when the story of Job may have taken place. So again, not in chronological order, um, the account was probably written much later, uh, perhaps during the time of Solomon. Okay, but but think Job was probably well, was around before Abraham, right? So this is before Israel is even existing as a nation. 
Why was Job in the Bible? I think I put this in your, your notes because this is, we got to, you know, like we talked about Ruth. Why is the story of Ruth in the Bible? Well, because the last verses tell us this is uh, helping us understand where David comes from, okay? So why is Job a book about a non-Israelite suffering immense things outside of Israel? Why is this story in the Bible, okay? Well, it does this. Job serves to teach the people of God that suffering does take place in the lives of faithful, upright people. Okay, so think about that for a minute, just in the context of if you're an exiled Jew or a Jew who's come back into the land after the exile and you're righteous, but yet you're suffering for the sins of the nation, suffering does happen to righteous people. So this is an important point to learn. Job teaches us that our responsibility is to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As wisdom literature, Job teaches the followers of Yahweh that flourishing in life is not equal with material and physical wealth and wholeness. Flourishing comes from fearing and trusting the Lord. And that's what the book of Proverbs is going to guide us into, right? What is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge? It's the fear of the Lord, okay? So the, Job, uh, the book of Job summarized, and I don't know why we say Job and not Job, but yeah, yes. Uh, to stand in awe, to rightly worship. That's off the top of my head. That's how I would... Uh, yeah, you, you put me on the spot. I'm not a quick thinker. If I don't have it in my notes, I'm lost. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what I would... Yeah. No, it's not the coward No, right, because Proverbs, it's not, a, a, not the servile fear where I'm in dread of, but that I hold him rightly. Yeah, reverential respect, reverential awe would be another way to think about it that way. Good question. And if I don't have an answer, I will just say I don't have an answer, and I'll come back to you. Aaron's always got, it. Aaron's always got an answer. There we go. Right. But there is that tinge of that scared fear because he is. He's the Almighty. Yep. But it has so much more relational. It's like people equate it to a relationship with a good loving dad. Yes, that's that's where I was gonna go. He can whoop my behind. Right. But he also takes care of me and protects yep. me and defends me and loves me and all that. Yep. So. Yeah, a, a relate there's the relational element to it that's really important. Right, and but and it's not, and it, but it's born out of like that's the best thing, and that's the in even in the relational aspect, you know that it's the best thing for us to worship him because nothing else will satisfy. Um, so yeah, I think it's very much there. All right, so here's my summary of the of the book of Job. Good questions, by the way. Feel free to interject at any time. And if we're here for three hours, huh, that's okay. We'll have fun. Uh, So, summary of Job. Through grievous loss and suffering, Job learns who God is and how God works. Neither Job nor his friends fully understand God and his working. Job's friends' counsel is based on a simplistic and reductionist understanding of God. They know some true things about God, but their knowledge is lacking. They're not wise. Job, as well, does not know why these things have happened to him, but he does press into the character of God and ask questions of God. 
In the end, God answers, not with a precise, detailed explanation of how he does what he does and why he does what he does. Rather, he responds by helping Job see who Job is and helping Job see who God is. All right, that's where, that's where the book is going to go. Okay? So the book is structured around a series of conversations between Job and his three friends, and then a fourth friend comes in, and they're all seeking to counsel him. Um, uh, the final voice is Elihu, the youngest, and he will have a better understanding than the other three by quite a bit, but none of them seem to have it all right. And then at the end of the book, of course, uh, Job has his final, well, no, let's see, Elihu comes after that, and then the Lord speaks, and the Lord settles the issue once and for all, okay? So the outline um, that I, 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 what I'd like to do is just kind of walk through the book, point some things out, try and summarize it, and uh, then we'll make some final observations about it. The first three chapters I, I look at is kind of a preface. Uh, the first chapter, well, first two chapters, give us a glimpse into the spiritual realm, right? This is one of the very few instances in the Bible where we see this, right? And Satan comes before the Lord, uh, and we see here that God rules all things. Nothing happens apart from his will. He allows things to happen. And the, the theological implications of these chapters are pretty large. Uh, and unfortunately, we don't have time to like, well, we could spend a week just in the first two chapters and talking about Satan coming before God and what God allowing and things like that. But what we need to understand is the evil that befalls Job does not originate from God, nor is it outside of his control. Okay, those are important things to, to keep in, in there. He is not caught off guard by these events. Rather, all of these uh, events serve to further God's purposes in Job's life and in redemptive history, right? So even as you ask the question, why does God allow these things to happen to Job? Well, we learn a lot of things from God allowing this to happen to Job, Okay. The first two chapters also show us that God allows his people to be tested. I think this is, a, this is a theme that runs throughout the scripture, right? Abraham was tested, right? The Lord allows his people to, uh, to uh, go through testing. It doesn't come from a place of cruelty or a desire to cause pain for the sake of causing pain, right? The Lord's not vindictive and cruel and just trying to cause his children to squirm. That's not the point. The testing has a purpose. It has a limit. And the one tested belongs to God and is given the grace to endure the test. Okay, so here's just a couple of important passages, familiar ones. James chapter 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, so there is a, a reward for endurance in suffering. First Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. First Corinthians 10, this is the passage where we, we see that there is endurance and grace given for trial. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. He, he provide grace to walk through a trial and not fall away and to glorify the Lord in the midst of it. And that's what we see even, even in Job. Mm-hmm. Right. And that needs to be brought out because sometimes people equate the two. Right. Temptation is to, well, in, in testing, there's a temptation as well, right? But temptation is a temptation to sin. Testing would be a trial, something like that. But in the midst of that, like often there's a, a temptation to be like, 
I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to trust the Lord. I want, I'm going to sin in the midst of this suffering. Yeah. Uh, okay, a couple of other things that we want to, we want to note. So in chapters one and two, the things we learn about the Lord, here's just a couple just bullet points. He allows disaster to fall, but does not cause it. And he puts parameters on how far it can go, right? So to, to, to Satan, you can do this and no further. And Satan can't, right? Uh, we also see that jo- the Lord blesses people, right? So we see all the things that, that, that uh, Job has comes from the Lord. We see he gives and takes away. Uh, chapter two, verse three, he does not destroy without reason. <clears throat> and then uh, you see in chapter one, verse 12, chapter two, verse six, evil does not come from his hand. Okay. Satan, a couple things we see about him. He has access to the presence of God. He is an accuser of righteous people. He's an accuser of the brethren, as the New Testament puts it. Uh, chapter one, verse seven, he wanders the earth. He's not omnipresent. Right, so uh, the, people have weird views about Satan. Right, that he's behind every bush. Right? No, he's not. He's not omnipresent. He's wandering the earth. He's not here, uh, right, right now. Okay, so that's that's important to understand. Uh, chapter one, verse ten and verse twelve. He has no ability to afflict apart from the Lord's allowance. Right. So that's a, that's another key thing to understand. Chapter two, verse three. He seeks to incite the Lord, but is never able to do so. And he does this for he has a desire to be like God, right? He wants to usurp his authority. And then in chapter 1, verse 12, and 2, verses 6, we should see that evil comes from him. So chapter 1 through 2.10, I've called Job's testing through loss of family, possessions, and health, right? So he has these terrible uh, things that come upon him. We've already looked in the first three verses and seen his character. He's blameless and upright, uh, this is seen by the Lord. He, we see after his children get together and have a feast that he's offering sacrifices in case they sin, right? So he's, he's seeking to, to atone for sin. And then the, after chapter one, right? So he has all these horrible things. Your camel, your, your flocks are taken away. Your children are killed. And what does he do? He worships. Right? This is a blameless and upright man. And the book really wants, the author of the book wants us to understand that. Job is an upright man. Because this is going to be the line of attack from his friends. You're not upright. That's why this is happening. Okay? So we need to under, understand that. Um, I do think it's interesting. We are like so slow in this, but whatever. There's good stuff here. Uh, in chapter one, look at verses nine through 11. Satan thinks that people only worship the Lord because of blessing. Right? Satan doesn't see the inestimable worth of the Lord. Right? And so he says, Job, only, is it, is it just because, it's only because you've put a hedge around him and blessed him. That's why he worships you. Take it all away and he won't. Well, no, Job sees the value and worth of God despite uh, not having all of these things. So I think that's, that's uh, something that just struck me as I was looking at that. Uh, of course, in chapter 2, Job is, the Lord allows Job to strike his health. So it has a very similar pattern as chapter one. Satan goes before the Lord again, and the Lord says, hey, uh, do you see my servant Job? In spite of all the suffering he has experienced, he still holds fast to me. So Satan's response is, well, let me strike his, his health. And the Lord says, okay, but you cannot kill him. And so he is struck with these, uh, these health issues because Satan says in chapter two, verses four through eight, surely if he has his own flesh harmed, he will curse God. And this even leads Job's own wife 
to encourage him in verse 9 of chapter 2 to curse the Lord. But verse 10 of chapter 2 is important, right? Job recognizes all of these things are from the hand of the Lord. I will not, I will not uh, curse him. Okay? Um, right away, though, we do have to ask, the question should first come to our mind, why does the Lord allow this testing? Why does he allow such great loss? And, and everybody that walks through this in life asks these questions. And we're not going to really know until we get to the end of the book. And even then, at the end of the book, our answer isn't going to be fully satisfied for us, except that we should see who the Lord is, right? We should see the character of God. So after chapters one and two, it's kind of like two rounds, Satan zero, the Lord and Job two, right? They've dealt knockout blows to Job, okay? And then we, we, we move on. So we're introduced to Job's three friends, starting in chapter 2, verse 11. We have Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, the uh, second shortest man in the Bible. Anybody know who the first is? This is an Aaron joke, by the way. The Roman soldier who slept on his watch. Right, and Bildad the Shuhite, right? He's short height of his shoe. You guys are a tough crowd, boy. And then Zophar the Namathite, okay? Chapter 3, we get to Job's lament. Uh, Job's questions here in this chapter seem to imply that he thinks never being born would have been better than suffering, right? Would I have rather died as a stillborn child than be born and experience this suffering? So he says, like in verse 13, the dead get rest. Verse 17, the wicked cannot trouble. Verses 25 and 26, I think this is his central contention. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Okay, so uh, because of the suffering, life stinks, is essentially what, he, what he's saying. So I think that's his, his central point. Then we get to chapter 4, all the way through chapter 31, and we have Job's three friends. So Stephen Dempster kind of introduces us to them. He says, Job is visited by other friends who, along with Job, represent the best human wisdom on the subject of God. That's a key phrase there when he says the human wisdom on the subject of God, as we get to these guys thinking. So uh, so it's the best human wisdom on the subject of God suffering in the government of the universe. The ensuing debate shows the inadequacy of all their thinking. Without revelation, they reach conclusions that either impugn divine or inhuman integrity. Try as they might, they cannot grasp the big picture with their limited minds and are in need of revelation. So chapters 4 and 5, Eliphaz is the first to speak. It says that uh, they sat with Job for a week, and then they decided to talk. So here comes Eliphaz, and his uh, argument I've essentially summed up in the sentence, Eliphaz is saying, Job, you're reaping what you've sown, okay? Um, Job, Eliphaz's counsel is essentially, Job, you've done something wrong. That's why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. Look at verses 6 through 8. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Remember, who was it that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Okay, so you're reaping what you have sown. This is what we would call retribution theology, right? You're getting back, uh, you're reaping what you have sown. And, and then look at verses 12 and following. And all of Job's friends are going to have a source of authority for their, their truth, right? So their truth, Eliphaz's truth, is you're reaping what you're, you've sown, right? You're, you're receiving just judgment from God for your sin. So 
Eliphaz's uh, source of truth is a vision. Verses 12 through 21. Uh, in this vision, he hears, can a man be right before God? This is interpreting Eliphaz's, this is helping Eliphaz interpret Job's situation. No man can be right before God. So he says in verse 12, now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night when deep sleep falls on men. So obviously he's had some sort of vision and this is how he is uh, applying his wisdom to Job's situation. Okay, uh, verse chapter five, he thinks that affliction is like a planted seed, right? So again, you're reaping what you've sown. So verses eight and nine of chapter five, he, he says what he starts to say, this is what I think you should do. So he tells Job, commit your cause to God. That's not bad counsel, right? That's, that's wise. Um, and then verses 17 and 18 of chapter five, he views what Job is, is experiencing as discipline, and then he goes on to say in verses 19 through 26, that if you follow my plan, everything's going to work out, right? And then at the end of the chapter in 25, he says, I'm, I'm sure of this. I'm sure of what I've said. If you commit your cause to God, if you recognize that this is coming on you because of sin, uh, it will all work out for you. Well, the problem though with Eliphaz's counsel, as well as the other friends that we're going to look at here in just a minute, uh, is that they're saying some true things about God, but their theology is incomplete, okay? So James Hamilton, he talks about this. He says, it seems, however, that the true statements made by Job's counselors do not arise from and are not couched within a biblical worldview. The truth claims of Job's friends are made from a different religious framework than the one Job embraces. Theirs is a mental universe in which a strict equation between justice and retribution exists with no room for mercy no room for mystery, and no room for Yahweh who shows his glory in both justice and mercy, right? So they can only think of a God who would only allow this kind of suffering because of some injustice on the part of the sufferer. He wouldn't, and he doesn't show any sort of mercy, and there's no mystery to him. And that's the one thing that as we'll go on, these guys have really small views of God. It's very simplistic. It's very reductionistic, okay? And so they are, they're wrong. Chapter 6 and 7, we see Job's response to Eliphaz. Uh, in verses 1 through 3, he's, he's portraying this suffering as an incredible weight, right? He uses this, uh, oh, that my vexation were laid, were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances. So he's picturing a scale. If you could put my suffering on a scale, it would overwhelm it. It's kind of the idea, I think, there. Um, verses 8 through 10, he, he's still desiring to die, but yet he is maintaining his integrity. I've not sinned against the Lord. Okay, and this is a response to Eliphaz who's saying, Job, you've sinned. This is why this is happening. You need to repent. No, I haven't. I mean, I, I wish I was dead because this is horrible, but I've not sinned against the Lord. That's not why this is happening to me. Verses 14 through 30 of chapter six, he's talking about how he is viewing the reproof of Eliphaz. And what he's saying is, I'm suffering. I don't need your reproof. I need a friend, right? And this is, this is like really good, like, uh, counsel. Uh, sometimes if you're, if you have a personality like mine, you can see like self-inflicted suffering on a person. And sometimes your first initiative is jumping up. I'm just going to correct that. I'm going to fix your problem. But actually they, they probably first need just a friend. They need some counsel. They need love and encouragement and correction too. But there's a, there's a balance there. And so here he's saying, I just need a friend, right? 
Um, and then in chapter 7, Job is responding to Eliphaz's con- conclusion that everything that will turn out for good, right? Eliphaz, Eliphaz is saying, hey, if you just follow my plan, life's going to work out. And Job says, no, actually not. Verses 1 through 10, he says, uh, I am allotted months of emptiness. My flesh and skin is wa- wasting away. And he says, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, right? So if you think about a loom, how fast that is moving back and forth. That's what my days are like. So it doesn't all pan out for good in the end. Uh, chapter 8, this is Bildad. So Bildad hears Job and he hears Eliphaz. And so he comes in and he says, Bildad, he's saying to Job, you're still wrong. You know, you, you've, you've issued a defense, but you're still wrong. So chapter 8, verse 2, he thinks Job is blowing smoke, right? You're, it's, it's like wind coming out of your mouth. Uh, and his argument is this, your children sinned and were judged. You've sinned and are being judged, but if you repent, you will be restored. So this is 1 through 7 of chapter 8. He holds to the same retribution theology as Eliphaz did, right? This has come upon you because of some wrong that you've done. Verses 11 through 19, we see Bildad's cause or his uh, source of authority, and it's cause and effect, right? So look at verse 11. Can a papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? And then you apply that to Job's situation. Can suffering exist where there is no sin? That's, that's his, his source of authority. You're reaping what you've sown as well. Okay. Um, in Bildad's mind, suffering and righteousness are mutually exclusive. They don't go together. Okay. So then this gets us to chapters 9 and 10, and Job responds to Bildad. And he says in verse 2, he says, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be right in how can a man be in the right before God? And so he's saying it is so. I think he's saying something is true. And I think he's agreeing with Bildad in 820, where he says, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evildoers. So I think he's, a, he's agreeing with that. And Job's frustration is how can he be in the right before God without arbitrating for himself? Because that's what he's going to get into in chapter 9, right? Uh, no man can be in the right before God. I'm, I'm claiming righteousness, Job is, right? And yet this is coming upon me. How, I, I need to arbitrate. I need an arbitrator before God. But how, how can I do that if I can't stand before God, okay? So in verses 4 through 13, he discusses the mysterious workings of God. And then in verse 15, he says, though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. All right, so again, he's maintaining his integrity. Um, but he, the second half of verse 15, he says, I must appeal to my accuser. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. Um, so he, he wants to appeal to his judge. In verse 16, he says, then he would listen to him. In verse 17, then my suffering would cease. So if I could get an audience with God, I'd make my appeal why I'm righteous and why this shouldn't be happening to me. He would hear me and then my suffering would stop. Okay, you see his, kind of his argument that we're, that we're having right now? Um, and so really at this point, Job's argument has changed. So it's really, he's, he's seeking to litigate his case before God and, and lay out his case why this should not happen to me, okay? Um, as, as we go on, especially once we get to chapter 16, Job is going to learn things, right? That, that ultimately he needs another mediator, arbitrator 
on his behalf. And he's going to understand that he is in heaven. He is uh, mediating on my behalf. Okay. Verse 27 of chapter nine, Job says, I can't just forget my complaint or change my attitude. So I can't just be like, well, this suffering, I'll just smile about it and it'll all go away. No, he, he, he doesn't think that way. And then verses 28 and 29, he talks about how this suffering seems to have uh, eternal implications to it, right? He has a fear of that. Chapter 10, verse 2, he feels if God is contending against him. Um, again, and then in, in chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, he's again asking, why am I being allowed to live if I'm dealing with all of this pain and suffering? Would it be better off if I had died in the womb, Okay. So this leads us to chapter 11, and we get to Zophar. And Zophar comes in, and he says to Job, you're a babbler. Right? You're just babbling on. He views it in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. This is a multitude of words and babble. And then he comes in in verse 6, and he says, if, if God were, were to speak, he would give you less punishment than you deserve. So again, here's the same retribution theology. You, you, are, you are suffering for your sin, and you're actually suffering less than you deserve for your sin. That's kind of what Zophar is saying. So then we get to chapters 12 through 14, and we get Job responding to all three of his friends. Look at verses 2 through 3, uh, a little bit of sarcasm, I think, here, right? No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you, right? <laughs> Uh, I think it's a bit of sarcasm, but I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? Uh, so he's, he's really saying, you guys aren't bringing nothing new to the table. You're not helping me understand this situation any better. Um, again, verses nine and 10, there are questions about where the suffering is coming from. Job's not satisfied with their answers. So he's again maintaining that this is from the hand of the Lord. This is where the suffering is, is coming from. Whereas Job's counselors are saying, no, this is because of your, your sin. This is a cause and effect type of to thing. Then to prove his point that this is from the hand of the Lord, he goes on a long uh, excursus starting in verse 13 through verse 25, talking about the sovereignty of God and his providential working in the world. And he's, his point is that nothing happens apart from the, the Lord causing it to happen. So he understands chapter one and chapter two and that God has allowed these things, right? He has set parameters. It will go this far or no further, right? And he's saying, we see this in, in the workings of the world. Um, then, uh, in chapter 13, what he, what he started in chapter nine, when he's saying, I want to go before God, I want to litigate my case. How can I be in the right before him? If I can't stand before him, chapter 13, he continues this. Uh, if you look at verse three, but I would speak to the almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. Look at verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him yet. I will argue my ways to his face. Verse 18, Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Okay, so he wants to litigate his case before the Lord. Paul House here says that by probing the Lord's character, he demonstrates a dogged faith that eventually results in his vindication. Job pursues this lawsuit because he hopes in God, because he will hope in God even if Yahweh kills him. All right, so he is, he's maintaining his uh, steadfastness in the character of God, and yet he still seeks to, to vindicate vindicate himself before the Lord. Um, chapter 15. I'm going to have to speed along here because we've got several chapters left and only 
20-ish minutes. Eliphaz comes in again and he says, Job, you do not fear God and your iniquity leads you to make the same arguments. Okay. Um, so here Eliphaz thinks that Job is sinning in the way he's talking about God, saying that this is coming from the hand of the Lord. And his lack of admission of sin is again cause for his suffering. Verse 9 of chapter 15 Uh, Eliphaz is confident in his assessment of Job's situation, so he asks this question, what do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Well, actually quite a bit, right? You guys don't actually know the Lord very well, as we we will see. Um, uh, Verse 14, he's rebuking Job for his desire to litigate himself before God, and again, can't see why what he's experiencing is not happening because of sin, and then chapter 16 and 17, Job replies again to all three friends. Uh, he says, you're counting verse two, miserable comforters are you. <laughs> Great line in the Bible, right? Miserable comforters are you. Your counsel is no comfort. Uh, verse four, uh, he's basically saying, what you're doing is really easy. If the shoe were on the other foot, I could do the same thing. I could just sit here and Say, it's all because of your sin. And that is, that's a very easy answer, right? Oh, it's just because you sinned. And, and, and Job is saying, that's just, that's simplistic, okay? Uh, verses six through 11, uh, Job is, is saying that God has allowed in his life, has allowed his friends, uh, well, basically what he's saying is, this suffering that the Lord has allowed in my life allows my friends to look at my situation and say, this is happening because of sin, right? I think, I think that's kind of what he's, what he's saying there. Verses 12 through 16, uh, again, he's saying he feels, uh, he's describing what he feels like God has done. And then in verse 17, he says he, he maintains that he has done no violence and his prayer is pure. So here, this is, this is like truly lament language. This is what it feels like. Feel like I wish I was dead. I feel like the hand of God is upon me. Um, you know, look at verse twelve. I was at ease, and He broke me apart. He seized me by the back of the by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He has set me up as his target. Feels like he's an object of injury from from the Lord. Okay, and then again, he maintains his integrity. Um, and then get to verse nineteen. This is an important one. Okay, because Job, remember, he is. He is maintaining this argument that he is upright and he wishes to vindicate himself before the Lord. But then in verse 19, notice this. Um, I guess I should get to it. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. Okay, so he now has moved from arguing his case before God to recognizing, no, I already have an arbitrary. I have a one who, who argues on my behalf in heaven already. He's looking for the Lord to cover his iniquity, right? Chapter 14, verse 17, he said the same thing. The Lord will vindicate him. So he's grown. He's confident that his advocate is already in heaven. Chapter 17 is Job describing his hopelessness, yet maintaining the idea that the Lord will justify him. Um, 17, verse 9, yet the righteous holds to his way, and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. So uh, his issue seems to be if he continues to hold his way. Uh, so if he continues to experience his suffering, then he says in verse 13, uh, if I experience this suffering, 
If I make my house in shale, who will see my hope? Right? So it's almost like uh, if, if I die in this decrepit state and maintain my confidence in the Lord, won't it look like it's for nothing? That, that seems to be the argument uh, that, he is, that he is trying to make there. And so again, he's asking the Lord for relief. Chapter 18, Bildad jumps in and he says, you think we're stupid, is basically what he says in chapter 18. Uh, verse three, he, he says that. Verse five, he says, Job, you're experiencing this. And he uses this language of a flame or a light being put out. And he says, your flame is being put out because you're wicked. And then he goes on to describe what he thinks happens to the wicked in chapter 18, verse six through the end of the chapter. And then Job jumps in in chapter 19 and he says, have mercy on me, my friends, for I know my redeemer lives. Verse three, he's saying, you continue to cast reproach upon me. You continue to say this is all because of sin. Uh, in verses, he, well, in this chapter, like verses six through 12, he continues to argue the Lord has brought this upon me. Um, he understands in verses 28 and 29, he, he recounts their argument and says, I understand what you're saying, that the problem lies with me. That's what you're saying. But again, I don't, I don't agree with your, with your conclusion. Um, verses 23 through 27, and, and also verse 26 especially, especially, Job is looking forward to the resurrection. Right? He's confident that he will be vindicated before the Lord. So he talks about verse 26, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Right? So here is, he's looking for, think about it, this is before Abraham, time of Babel, and he under, has this revelation from God, understanding there is a future resurrection. Okay? Chapter 20, Zophar comes in. He's kind of fired up. Uh, verses 1 through 3, there, uh, Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Okay, So he's like angry at this point. Job, why won't you listen to us? Why? Uh, he's, he's upset by, by this fact. And again, he returns to the same theme, right? He's just, these guys, these guys are kind of all talking past each other in a sense, right? They keep saying the same thing over and over. Um, so verse five, he says, the exulting of the wicked will not last. You are the wicked and that is why you are suffering. Then he gets to the end of the chapter, verses 27 to 29. And he says, the wicked will come to end. And he says that God, rather than vindicating you, will be against you. Okay, so this is Zophar's argument. And then Job responds to Zophar in chapter 21 and says, you're wrong. The wicked don't always suffer, right? And this is, this is something that the book of Proverbs will, will point out as more. Um, the wicked sometimes prosper in this life, right? This is one of the great questions of life. Why do the good suffer and the wicked flourish, okay? Um, so look at chapter 21, verses 7 through 9. He says, the wicked reach old age. They have children and are safe from fear and judgment, uh, look at verse 14. They flourish and say to God, depart from us. Uh, and then verse 16, because of their prosperity, they see no need for God. So again, he's saying your, your argument doesn't work. Look at the world around you. There are wicked people that we can actually all agree are wicked and they're doing just fine. Okay. For now. now, Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. Then we get to chapter two. Eliphaz comes in and it's almost like their arguments are they're more incensed by Job's continued uh, assertion that he is righteous. So Eliphaz jumps in and says, you're evil, Job, in chapter 22. 
Um, look at verses 1 through 5. Uh, he's, he, here he's trying to show Job that his claims to uprightness are nothing to God. And if he were truly upright, again, he'd not be suffering as, as he is. Then verses 6 through 11, he lists what he thinks Job has done wrong. And then at verse 21, he is sure that his view of Job's situation is how God views it. So Job should agree with God and with, with Eliphaz, and then peace and good will come to him. Okay, and again, this is very simple. Like if they, they're saying, if you just follow our prescription and admit your sin, then everything will just go be fine, right? And there are, even you think about, I'm gonna go off on a rabbit trail. There are presentations of the gospel that are that way, right? Oh, just trust Jesus and everything will be fine. No, right? That, that's not true. Uh, you're promised suffering, hardship. That's, that's part of the Christian life. Chapter 23 and 24, and Job asked the question, where is God that I may stand before him? So again, here he wants to arbitrate his case. So verses three through seven, uh, he went, wants to lay his case before the Lord and the Lord would listen to him and then he would be acquit, acquitted is what he's saying. But verses eight and nine, he asks the question or he states, I cannot find God. Verses 15 through 17, he is terrified by what he does not know about God. Uh, chapter 24, verse 1, he asks this question, uh, and, and he's wishing, why is there not regular appointments before God where men could go before them, go, go before him to vindicate himself, go before him as a, as a judge? Uh, he asks the question in chapter 24, why are wrongdoers never judged? And then chapter 24 concludes um, essentially with the, the complaint that the righteous don't ever get the chance to vindicate themselves before God. And, and yet the wicked uh, don't ever seem to be judged. Um, Paul House pointed out that, that he is trying to explain why it seems justice is reversed. Why is he a righteous man suffering and the wicked are not? But he doesn't come up with a satisfactory answer. Chapter 25, Bildad has a short little thing here. He says, man cannot be right with God, so Job just needs to accept this. You're not going to be vindicated before God. You're not upright. So Bildad is the last of the three friends to speak. Jason DeRucci summarizes these guys' uh, comments in this way. He said, Job's friends, cold, simplistic theology that does not provide a comprehensive understanding of how God works in his world. God is good, and therefore, surely he has made a good world. God causes bad things to happen to bad people and re rewards good people. One can infer from the events whether God is punishing you or not. That's essentially what, how they view the world, how they view God, and how they view Job's situation. Okay? Uh, and so this leads us in chapter 26, all the way through chapter 31, Job's final reply. Um, so he says first, he, he seems to mock these counselors. He asks the question, verse 4, With whose help have you uttered words, and whose breath has come out of you? And then he goes on to describe, starting in verse 5 of chapter 26, the works of God. And then in verse 14, he closes with this, this wonderful statement when he says, these works of God are but the outskirts of his ways. Right? So he's, almost, he's saying like, you know, you can look and see all these works of God, and that's just barely touching who he is and how, he's, how, he, how he works. Right? And yet, you, he's saying to his friends, you think you have God figured out? You think you've got this, this all nailed? Um, 
Chapter 27, verses 5 and 6, he will not say that his friends are right, nor will he abandon his claim to integrity and uprightness. Um, Verse 11 and 12 of chapter 27, he is certain that Zophar and the others are wrong in their understanding of the ways of God, so he is going to teach them. Uh, Starting in verse 13 of chapter 27, he describes the portion of the wicked man. Um, And then in chapter 28, he describes the... Chapter 28 is interesting. He describes the workings of man in mining and in wisdom, right? So he talks about... uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 28, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from ore. So he describes all these things that men do to find treasure. But then he says, Man doesn't know where to find wisdom and no treasure on earth compares to wisdom. Right? So we can go dig treasure out of the earth, but we can't go find wisdom. Okay? Um, <clears throat> and then he says at the end of chapter 28, Starting in verse 23, where does wisdom come from? Wisdom is from God. Okay, this is his point there. So his final appeal is this. He has obeyed what has been revealed to him. He knows that wisdom is with God. He knows that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. He has pursued wisdom, but now all he knows is pain and suffering. All right, so this is kind of his, his final appeal. Chapter 29, he longs for the days of old. Uh, when he didn't suffer like this, when he was well-respected, he talks about, you know, people used to see me in this way. I was uh, elder in the city. I gave counsel to people. Um, and again, he's asserting in chapter 21, when I was prosperous, I did what was right. I didn't, I was an upright man with integrity. But chapter 30, verse 1, he says, now I am laughed at. Chapter 30, verse 9, I'm a byword, and this is all because God has humbled him, Okay. Uh, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 30, he says, my friends, I look to them and you're only cruel to me. Okay, again, they've been no, no help. And then chapter 31 is, is his, his uh, uh, final appeal. You know, at verse one and two, again, he's, he's saying, uh, declaring his uprightness, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then should I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and numbers all my steps? So again, it seems to me that Job also has a little bit of retribution theology in a way, right? Because he's maintaining his integrity and it almost seems to think that if he, that's why he doesn't understand this is happening, right? Because I'm upright. Why is this, this happening? I've not, I've not done these. And then 31, he has all these if-I phrases, right? So verse 5, verse 7, verse 9, verse 13. If I, have done, you know, if I had done this, then I could understand why suffering has happened. If my steps were this way, then I would understand why this suffering has come up upon me. Um, and at the end of the chapter, 31, it could be summed up this way. If I have done wrong, then let judgment come, but I have not done wrong. I have lived according to wisdom, and God will not hear me, verse 15, and answer my question, or so he thinks. Okay? Um, are you guys, we're, it's four till. Can you hang on for 10 more minutes? Okay? And then we can, I think, finish this up. Because uh, I don't want to stop at chapter 32. Then we only have like 10 chapters left, and it's not enough for a whole lesson, so we just got to plow through it. So chapter 32, here comes Elihu. Uh, 
And in chapter 32, it, it, it describes who Elihu is. These three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. Okay, And so he's sitting around listening to this conversation. He's like, you guys are idiots. <laughs> right? You don't have any answers. And so he's burning and he must, must, feels that he must speak. Okay, so in verses one through five, we're kind of given a summary of this. And then uh, he says in verse nine, why he now speaks, he goes, I realize wisdom's not with the aged. Um, and why he's waited and was waiting, what he was waiting for. Uh, verses 11 through 15, he thought these, these were wise men who would give wise counsel, okay? So uh, he, was, he was trying to be respectful and understanding like, hey, you guys have a lot more life experience than me. Surely you can give some counsel. But after listening, he says, it does, wisdom doesn't just lie with old, old people. So chapter 33, he says, listen up, Job. Uh, he summarizes Job's argument in verses 9 through 11, right? When he's quoting and saying of Job, you say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts, me, puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. So he's saying there what Job would be saying. Um, and then he corrects Job in verses 12 through 13. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? Okay, and then he goes on to describe the ways that the Lord does speak with man, and he says in a number of ways. Verse 14, verses 15 and 16, he says the Lord could speak in a dream or a vision. Verse 19, he could speak through pain. And then we see in the end, verses 24 and 26, the Lord redeems those who are near death and they see the Lord in his salvation. So through suffering, the Lord could be speaking is what he's saying. And then we get to chapter 34 and really here Elihu is saying, far be it from God that he should do wickedness. So again, he kind of summarizes Job's argument in verses five and six when he says, for Job has said, I am in the right and God has taken away my, my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. So here again, look at verse 10. Elihu asserts that God does no wrong. It's not wrong of God to do, to allow this. Um, and then verses 21 through 25 of chapter 34, uh, he's, he's, saying to, he, he's saying to Job, God sees every step of man. He doesn't need you to come before him and argue your case. He knows your situation, right? He's, he's allowed this. He doesn't need a man to come argue before him. And then in chapter 35, he corrects Job. So he seeks to correct his thinking that uh, it is his right to argue his case before God. Chapter 35, verse 2. Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask what advantage have I? How am I better off than I had sinned? Okay, so he's, he's pointing out, it's foolish for you to ask this, and it's foolish for you to say, uh, would I not be better off if I had sinned, right? Because remember, his whole argument is the wicked flourish, and I'm sitting here as a righteous man, and I'm, I'm suffering, okay? Um, and then chapter 36 and chapter 37, this is Elihu's counsel. 
He's counseling Job to consider the greatness and majesty of God. So chapter 36, verses 5 and 7, he's saying, God is great and mighty, not despising any. He's not forsaking the righteous. Verses 8 through 10, he corrects the righteous when they sin. Verses 11 through 12, when the righteous repent, they are blessed. When they refuse to listen, they perish. Verses 13 through 15, the godless, when afflicted, do not cry to the Lord. Right? A wicked man, when he's suffering, he's not, he's not crying out to the Lord. And then verses 22 through 33, here he's essentially saying, who can understand the greatness of God and his works? And then he jumps into chapter 37, and he, just, he talks about the majesty of God seen in nature. So he describes uh, thunder, lightning, downpours, freezing temperatures and snow and, and saying this all proclaims the majesty and greatness of God. And then really what he wants to do in verse 24 of chapter 37, he wants Job to consider these things about God and to ask, do you know how God works? Right? That, that's, that's the question he needs to ask. His bottom line is men are to fear God. He does not regard those who are wise in his own conceit. And he's basically saying, Job, you're wise in your own conceit. Consider, consider the Lord. So again, Jason DeRucci summarizes these speeches of Elihu this way. He says, in the midst of pain, the proper response is not self-justification, but God-dependence, resting in the awesome creator and sustainer of all who has bestowed on man an amazing blessing and purpose, and yet whose ways are always higher than man's ways. So Elihu has really got it pretty right, right? He's saying, in the midst of this, like, you, you need to worship, you need to consider the greatness of God. So this leads us to chapter 38. And there's been a lot of talk, a lot of human wisdom, a lot of uh, speculation about how God works, and into the scene steps the Lord. And, and really, the whole book of Job should, say, should show us, for one, without revelation, man is really in trouble. And so God is really good to reve- reveal himself. Okay, so starting in chapter 38, we hear from the Lord. And here, what the Lord does is he does not answer each of Job's questions. Rather, he just reveals himself. Okay, so you think about all these questions that Job has. He's not going to say, well, let's just, um, we're going to tit for tat. Let me respond to each, each one. No, he just says, this is who I am. So he speaks. Notice that it is, in your Bible, it should be capital L, capital O-R-D. That's Yahweh, right? This is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who appears to, to Job. And this uh, was surely, you think about it, all of Job's friends uh, asserted that he was wrong, that he was a sinner, he was not righteous, and here comes Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, who speaks to Job, right? That's got to be a little, bit of a, a little bit of a shock to them, okay? Um, verse 2, there's this initial question the Lord asks to Job, and has to do with his darkening of counsel or hiding wisdom with his words. Um, so when he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Um, this is a, from a commentary. It says, Job has drawn conclusions about the nature of God's rule from what was revealed on earth in his and other circumstances. However, he did not account fully for what is hidden from him. And this, his words cast a shadow on the wisdom and righteousness of God's rule. So basically he said, from what I can see in nature, this is how I think God works. But it wasn't right, right? You know, all of these guys, they have this idea of retribution. This is how God works in the world. But their, their wisdom actually casts a shadow on the mystery of God, right? So, so in your theology, you always have to leave room for mystery, right? That, that 
we don't, we're not going to fully understand all of God's ways. So that's why he asks this question, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then what the Lord does from this point on is just point to things in the natural world and ask Job if he understands how these things work, right? So chapters 38 and 39, he's saying, do you understand the observable world? So first he asks about questions, chapter 4, verse 30, uh, chapter 38, verse 4 through 38, he's asking questions about the heavens and the weather. Do you understand how these things work, Job? Nope, I don't, Right. So then he gets to uh, the end of chapter 38, all the way through chapter 39, and he asks questions about the animal world. Do you understand how these things work, Job? Nope, I don't, right? That, that's the, the point is, well, we'll see in chapter 40, silence, right? There is, there is no answer, right? So he's asking, is it by your wisdom that these things take place? Was it by your wisdom that the world was created? You think you've got it figured out? No, let me, let me show you, Okay. And then chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, Job is saying to the, uh, the Lord is saying to Job that you're a fault finder or a contender or a reprover of Yahweh. And after Yahweh's revelation, do you still want to contend with me? Do you still want to reprove me? Is what he's, what he's, do you still want to argue with God? All right. And so then leads to Job's silence in verses 3 through 5. Um, that's the proper response, humility. Right? When you recognize the greatness of God, in spite of the suffering you experience, you can't contend with God. You just go, God is great, and his purposes are far beyond whatever I can comprehend, and I'm just going to sit in, in silence. Um, and then we, he goes on to, the Lord speaks about his justice, chapter 6, down through verse 14. Um, is Job's justice like the Lord's? Can Job understand how the Lord can be just like he is, is, is working in the world? And then he gets into this long discussion, starting in verse 15, all the way through the rest of chapter 41, about behemoth and leviathan. And the point is that these are the two greatest and fiercest creatures. And he's asking, can you control these? Can you, can, can you tame these, these beasts uh, he says in chapter 40, verse 24 about behemoth, can you take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? The answer is no, you can't, you can't control this. Leviathan, verse one of chapter 41, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? No, you can't, right? And then he goes on to say um, in chapter 41, verses 10 and 11, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So he's saying, you can't even contend with a created being. How much, or less, how much less are you going to contend with me? Right, this is who, who is. Um, so then this leads to Job's response in chapter 42. And at the beginning of chapter 38, remember when, when the Lord says, who is this that... Uh, Oh, I can't. Uh, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Uh, so his his wisdom has cast a shadow on the wisdom of God. So here he admits uh, that he has done that. Right by my wisdom, I have darkened the 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 majesty of God. Verse five: He has learned truth about God that he had not known before. Um, and really here he's saying that his quest has been to vindicate himself before God, to show himself blameless and to have his questions answered. But as God has revealed himself, Job realizes that his questions do not have to be answered in order for him to be satisfied. 
right? He just, he's come to know the greatness of God and is that he is, he is satisfied. Bottom line, Derucci again says this, Job never finds out why he suffered. The reader simply learns that Job was not the reason, but that God was the reason, not simply as the source, but as the goal. I thought that was a really uh, good statement, right? God is not only the source, but he's the goal. So in suffering, the goal is God, right? That we see him as greatness. In the end, uh, Job's friends are rebuked, all of them, except Elihu, and then he is restored. Uh, and, and again, it is interesting that it ends with a restoration, because if you think about it, in this life, many people suffer and die uh, painful deaths. They're not healed. Not everything pans out in the end. Why does the book end this way? And I, I think I put this in your notes. Again, this is from Jason Deruti. He says, The ending of Job gives tangible evidence that God will make good for his righteous, whereas the glories of the future are at times portrayed in new creational images of the out there, Job ends in a way that gives visual evidence in the right here that God is both able and willing to overcome all evil for his beloved. Job's life gives believers hope. Okay? So that's the book. We'll stop there. I've gone way over time. Uh, there are a few obli- er, observations and applications, and you can read those on your own.